And so I can tell a retailer, if you put a location here, I can tell them how many dollars are in that specific trade area that are spent on what you sell. And it takes about five minutes to find that out. That's awesome. Hey, this is Bo Barron, CCIM, owner and managing director of Barron Commercial Group. And this is... Look what I found. Timmy. <laughs> oh, Timmy. Uh, I'm Timmy Barron, a ADHD. I'm an actor and a comedian. And Bo is teaching me all about... Um, commercial real estate. Commercial real estate. Because this is commercially speaking. I was dragging this morning. It's like I woke up in the middle of a sleep cycle. I did not want to get up. And Timmy, true to form, as normal, you just breathe energy into the equation just by showing up. So that's helping me uh, yeah. this morning. It, so thank you very much. You're very, very welcome. Do you know what Blake Bergstrom told me? As God was pouring the amounts of like, here's some empathy, here's heart, here's uh, love, that as he was pouring my energy cup, that a angel came by and knocked his arm. <laughs> or passion. Maybe it was passion. I think that it, it happened the same thing with, like, creative skill in general. I quote you, or I have quoted you often. Yeah. You got all of what should have been distributed equally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know how dull our family get-togethers would potentially be if we took you out of the equation? Yeah. It would be a night full of deep, meaningful conversations yeah <laughs> you know that's what our family is uh, which is not a bad thing right it just lacks a certain amount of yeah fun and whimsicality is that even a word yeah it is now yeah it is now yeah, you know everything in moderation including deep deep talks like let's plumb the depths of your soul Let's balance yeah. this out a little bit. All right. What you teaching me? You know, in episode one, we talked about economic base analysis and how you can use it to predict demand. This is a little bit of a follow-up to that conversation. What I want to share with you today is how do you take that information and apply it to the four major food groups of commercial real estate, which are office, retail, industrial, and multifamily or residential in general. So help me just as a review somebody hasn't watched episode one, which I would recommend, it'll kind of set this episode up, but remind everybody what a basic job is. So a basic job is the jobs that bring new dollar bills because what they make is sold outside of the community. Yeah. So they create goods or services that are exported outside the local community, the local market. And in return, it brings dollar bills back. So let me ask you this, because this is happening right now in Owensboro. Churchill Downs is going to build a facility in Owensboro that is essentially going to be off-track betting. So you can go there and you can bet on horse races that have already happened, which I don't understand the appeal of that, but evidently it's a thing. Hence, You can't just throw that out and be like, I don't know exactly how that works without me... What? You can go there and watch historical horse races. I would imagine that you don't know what they're going to play. So it's not like you can go do your research and understand what horse wins what race and come with that information. It's, it's like you're watching it live, but you're watching races 
that have already happened in the past that you don't know anything about. So it's essentially aren't on record other than on that VHS tape they got. If you had that information beforehand, uh, they wouldn't make any money and they wouldn't do it. So I'm sure there's a level of secrecy about what, whatever. Yeah. Okay. okay. You know, they're going to spend millions and millions of dollars building this facility. They are going to employ probably, it'd probably be 100, 200 maybe. Do you think those would be basic or non-basic jobs? Is it kind of like a, I guess it'd be like a tourist attraction in a way where people from out of town will be visiting. So that would bring new dollar bills in. Follow the money. Where does the money go? To Into the winner's pockets. Oh. <laughs> into, to, into the facility. Most people will go there that are local, and most people will lose. If Churchill Downs owns that facility and it's making a bunch of money, where do those dollars go? To Churchill Downs. In Louisville. Oh, Louisville. A facility like this mm-hmm. takes money out of the economy. Now, not completely, right? They're paying their employees, okay? So, like, all the money that circulates inside of this facility is not leaving and going to Louisville, all right? But a lot of it is. Yeah, yeah. So, it will have a net effect of removing dollar bills. So, these would not be basic jobs. Now, there are indirect results of putting a facility like this in Owensboro in that there is likely going to be a lot of development around it. But I don't know that it's ever going to, in an, a net positive way, bring new dollars in to Owensboro. So just as an example, if you're trying to figure out basic or non-basic, you just follow the money. Like, where does the money go? So thanks for that recap on basic. You're very welcome. It probably went a lot longer than you planned. So anyway, when you look at predicting demand, you've got basic employment. They create the non-basic jobs. So they have that multiplier effect that we talked about in episode one, which is the economic base multiplier. Mm-hmm. So you go from basic employment to total employment. So you just add up all the basic jobs and all the non-basic jobs, and you have total employment. Total employment leads to total population. You don't just have employees living in a town. You have their elderly who live there and may not work. You have spouses who live there and may or may not work. Don't forget about our fuzzy, fuzzy little friends, right? We got these, the dog population will get bigger and the kitten population might be a little big too. We don't count the furries in population, but total employment leads to total population. And for every community, you can look at how many employees are there and how many people are there. And there's a multiplier to population to employment ratio. And you can figure out how many people are there. Total population leads to disposable income. How much money is in a community based on the population that is available to buy stuff. All right. Now, what I just ran you through, basic employment to total employment to total total population to disposable income is the demand model. Oh. Now, if you consider office, you care about total employment when you're looking at office because you can predict the amount of office space that you need based on total employment. How many jobs are there? And how many of those jobs are office-using jobs? And I'm going to show you a really cool example of how to figure that out here in just a minute. If you look at a map of where all the biggest industrial markets are, it's where the most people are. Dallas, Chicago, L.A., New York, Indianapolis, Louisville, Nashville, like all the way down that I-65 corridor. You have great highways, you have people, and you can move stuff around. For industrial demand, you need employees and people. So total 
employment and total population drive the demand for industrial space. So when you look at the residential market, like what drives demand for residential? What do you think? People. People. Yeah, but you don't exactly care about the amount of people. You care about the amount of households. So you have to understand household size and you essentially just divide total population by the household size and you'll figure out how many households are in a community and that'll tell you how many housing units you need in a community. Now, when it comes to retail, what we care about is the amount of disposable income in a particular market. And that's it. That's the demand model. Basic employment to total employment, total population to total disposable income in a market. What I want to discuss at this point or teach you is a little bit about gap analysis. The whole concept of gap analysis is try to figure out if there's a gap in a market. Like, is there an opportunity to do something here? So if you run a gap analysis, you might find there's going to be a lot more demand for housing than there are housing units. So you might expect in the future a lot more households than there are housing units. So that might say, and this is an opportunity for somebody to build. But you handle the gap analysis differently in each one of these different four major food groups. So when it comes to office space, traditionally, and I say traditionally because this has changed wildly since COVID, is you would say how much office space is in a market and how many employees are there that use office space? And you would divide and you would figure out, okay, there's 213 square feet per employee on average in this market. And so if you see job growth coming and you can figure out how many of those new jobs would potentially use office, you multiply that by 213 and that could give you a picture of the demand that's coming and that might show you an opportunity. Or you could look at a market and say, there's way more office space here than there needs to be. Where did the number 213 come from? Oh, I just pulled it out of my head. Oh. So you remember the offices in the show Mad Men? Yeah. They're large couches in there and, you know, you had the cocktail bar and all that stuff, right? Well, you go back a ways to maybe Mad Men time. You might have, and I'm just guessing here, but you might have 250, 260 square feet per employee. The amount of square feet per employee has decreased over time. But what COVID did is it made us value our space more. Some of what we've seen because of COVID is this number increase some more. Because private office space, controlled environments were, were all of a sudden more valuable, uh, more appealing because of the fear of spreading COVID. The other thing that COVID did is it sent a lot of employees home and it decreased the demand for office. So we're right in the middle of this really murky time where we're not sure how it's going to shake out. And most of the people I've talked to think it's going to be two or three years from now before we really get a clue onto how that's going to play out. Yeah. Industrial, in a lot of ways, is the same method. You take how much industrial space there is and you look at, okay, how many employees in that market are industrial space users? And you do the math and you can come up with the same kind of metric, you know, certain amount of square feet per employee. The problem with this is there is more and more automation. There's some million square foot warehouses that are run by like 50 people. But I don't know of a better way of to do it when it comes to industrial space. You know, office is problematic because office space is being used so differently now. We don't know how the COVID shakeup's going to play out. Yeah. With industrial, the more automation that goes into these facilities, the more that number of square feet per employee gets skewed higher and higher. And I don't know that that makes sense 
in every market. And if you have an, a market like ours uh, or like mine in Owensboro, we don't have those big facilities with the big, really, really like 40, 50 feet ceiling height and all kinds of robotics and automation running that facility. Then this method makes sense in Owensboro. The newer facilities really skew that number higher and it's, it's harder to figure out, right? Now, when you go to residential, you're looking at households, not the actual amount of people. And you need the same thing. You need a certain amount of vacancy so people can move. You need a certain amount of inventory in the market so people can buy houses. And, and then there's a whole other layer at this point. And, and think about this, because most communities have this issue right now. It's all the new stuff is nice and expensive. The new apartments are expensive to rent. Uh, the new homes are generally built uh, for people with more wealth. Um, and so if you don't make a lot of money, you have less and less and less opportunity to find good housing. And so there's a big gap in the affordable housing space, housing for people who don't make great incomes. That's more and more problematic in just about all major markets across the United States. But in any market, if you're going to do a gap analysis, you'll just figure out how many people are there? What's the average household size? That'll tell you how many households are there. And then you look at the supply, like how many housing units are there? You know, single family homes, duplexes, fourplexes, apartment communities, how many housing units are there? And the gap model is demand minus supply. So you take the amount of demand, which are the households, and you subtract out the supply, which are housing units, and you see if there's a gap. Is there more demand than there is supply? And you have to factor in that amount of vacancy that you need. That's how you do a gap analysis for okay. residential. Retail is a little different, and it's a little bit more complicated. We don't care about how many jobs. We don't care about how many people. We only care about how many dollars of disposable income are in a market. Now, when you look at any particular retailer, they define their own trade area. You mentioned in, I think, episode one, your favorite copy shop, something Mondays or... Happy Monday. Is it right out the window? Like I was editing last night, they were roasting beans and my window was open. How like nice. It was like 1 a.m. So Happy Mondays, what do you think their trade area is? Now, here's what a trade area is. It's where do they get the primary amount of their customers? Oh, the neighborhood. Yeah, so their trade area is probably pretty small. So if you were going to figure out demand for Happy Mondays, you would talk to them and say, what's your trade area? Where do you get about 80% of your customers? And they might say, within a five-minute walk, maybe. Or it might be a five-minute drive time, or it might be a 15-minute drive time, depending on what the retailer is. But you have to understand what the retail trade area is for that specific retailer. Now, on the flip side, think of like Bass Pro Shop. What do you think the trade area where they might get 80% of their customers is? You think it's a neighborhood? No, no. Oh, it's man. The, the city, surrounding cities. like Yeah, and some of these are in areas outside of a major market area. And people might drive an hour or two to go there. Well, that's a much larger trade area, but it's the, it's the specific trade area for that retailer. So what a retailer does when they want to know if, if there's enough demand for them to put a store in a place and actually break even and make money, you find a potential location for them. And they say, okay, my primary trade area, let's say it's a 10-minute drive time. Then you could run a report 
that says in this trade area with these specific people and the specific amount of dollars that they make, what percentage of those dollars are spent on furniture, auto parts, restaurants, or bars, or whatever else, automobile sales? It breaks it out by category. And so I can tell a retailer using site to do business, if you put a location here and your primary trade area is a 10-minute drive time, I can tell them how many dollars are in that specific trade area that are spent on what you sell. And it takes about five minutes to find that out. That's awesome. So let's say we have a restaurant with a 10-minute drive time as their trade area. We can figure out how many dollars in that specific trade area will be spent on what they sell, their food. Okay. And then you look at how many other competitors are competing for those dollars in that trade area. And we look at it based on square footage. So let's say my uh, restaurant that I'm trying to help find a location is 6,500 square feet, right? Most fast casual type restaurants, you know, your Applebee's, your O'Charlie's, they're around 6,500 square feet-ish. And let's say there's already 50,000 square feet from competing restaurants for those same dollars. What you'll do is you'll, you'll take those 50,000 and then you'll add the 6,500 that you're thinking about building there. So there would be what, 56,500 square feet going after those particular dollars. If we put this restaurant in this space with this trade area, with these competitors, what dollar per square foot can I expect to get? And what that retailer will know, what this restaurant and this example will know, is that for us to break even and start to make money, we have to know that we can get $350 per square foot or whatever their number is. They'll know their number. Right. And you can predict, if you put it here, you'll make this amount of dollars per square feet. And they'll say, well, we need to make this per square feet. So we either do it or we don't. Where a lot of times it's that simple. Right. And that's how you figure out gap for retail. So it's a little bit different. You do it on a dollars per square foot, you know, the amount of your store plus the competing stores within a specific trade area. Yeah. So when you look at office, you're looking at amount of square feet per employee. When you look at industrial, it's about the same amount of square feet per employee. When you look at residential, it's how many households are there and how many housing units are in that market. Is there a demand there? And when you look at retail, you're looking at how many dollars per square foot, what kind of potential for that is there in this market if we add this store? And is that above or below the threshold that they need to have a profitable store? You know, in each of those examples, what you end up doing is you calculate the demand. So how many square feet per employee? If we're forecasting there's going to be a thousand more office users two years from now, how much more? demand will there be? And then you calculate the supply, how much office space is in the market. Mm -hmm. Well, forecast two years from now, looking at the pipeline and what's being built, how much supply will there be two years from now? And then you run the equation, demand minus supply equals the gap. And if there's more demand than there is supply, then there's an opportunity. And you also have to factor in and gross up. You know, we also need a certain amount of vacancy to make the, the market work. Right. So if demand says we need 3 million square feet, we probably need maybe another 10, 15%, depending on the market, just to give people the option to have choices and be able to move and grow and downsize or whatever they need. Well, let me ask you this then. Uh, this is the value that you bring or a broker would bring more than likely. They bring this kind of knowledge in that's valuable for me 
as either an investor or a user of space. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you're a retailer, you want to understand, is there demand there for what I'm going to do? Yeah. And a lot, what a lot of mom and pops do is they have a dream and they have a vision and they're like, we're going to make it work. And they open up a store. They might feel like there's demand, mm -hmm. but they don't know. And so it's more of a gamble than they'd like. Let me ask you this then, okay? I'm a mom and pop store. I've got an idea to open up a mom and pop. I'm the mother. It's a mother-daughter duo. We want to do like the blowouts where you can go to the salon, not just to get, not just to get your hair cut, but mainly to go and just get it styled or blown out. Okay. How often do you talk to these uh, potential users of space about the supply demand? I would imagine you would go into this and be like, hey, look, according to this information here, there is not much of a demand gap. Yeah. So I'll give you an example of, of how we handle this or how we take this kind of information and actually help our clients make good decisions. Yeah. There is a client, uh, Todd, my top producer. Top producer, Todd Humphreys. He had a client who is, um, wanted to do basically a downtown bar with, with some live music and stuff like this. And so maybe for a period of two years, he was showing him space and trying to find him a spot. So what we did was he, we connected him with a business consultant who helps us sometimes. And that guy sat down and did a business plan with, with Andy and his team awesome. and figured out, hey, here's, here's what it's going to cost you to operate your business. And we need to make sure that you have the income to at least break even. More than most mom and pop type retailers that we work with, Andy listened. He did a business plan and we ended up putting him in a in a location that was probably a little bit smaller than what he envisioned at first, mm -hmm. but it made the business plan work. And so he's had a lot of success because he's been able to keep his overhead down and... and uh, Fill that place up easier when it's smaller. Yeah. So not only are we trying to help him accomplish you know, his dream, his vision, but we're trying to give him all the information to once he gets that space that he can actually be successful and he makes good business decisions. Another example is, you know, let's say there's a, a, a nail salon that wants to open. Well, you almost have a nail salon in most strip centers in town. Like there's a bunch of them. And so what we can do is we can say, look, here's the amount of dollars in your trade area that you're looking at that are going to be spent in nail salons. And if you add your 1,400 square feet to what's already out there, what you can expect, just baseline, is this many dollars per square foot. And if that's what you end up getting, can you be successful? Now, sometimes they don't know if they can be successful or not. Mm -hmm. And so they might need somebody like our business consultant buddy who can sit down and help them do a business plan and figure it out. And at that moment, if you're getting good vibes from this person, you would say, hey, I've got somebody who can help with the biz dev. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yep. A lot of times we're helping our clients who are the landlords who are hiring us to lease their space. We're helping our landlords vet potential tenants. And we might be telling them, hey, look, this is what they want to do. They're willing to sign this kind of a lease. But I'm not sure if they can make it here. And so you may want to consider whether you're going to put them in a position where they actually fail if you lease this space to them. And that causes problems for everybody. And sometimes our, our landlords will just say no on the front end because they don't think the tenant has the financial ability. Well, I'll give you an example. I had, um, I had somebody who wanted to lease some space from us and they wanted to do a vape shop, which can be very profitable. 
I don't love those spaces. But when we looked at the two guys that wanted to open up the shop, they'd never done it before. They were both employees in different businesses, and they didn't have the financial strength to handle more than a month or two. Yeah. Things go bad. It's like, if I would have leased that space to them, maybe they would have been wildly successful. But everything was going to have to go right. And if everything has to go right for something to work, you don't want to do that. Yeah. Because that almost never happens. So if I would have leased space to those guys, I would have put them in a bad position. Yeah. And then if they would have failed, which I think would have been likely, they would have been in a bad spot, put me in a bad spot. Yeah. Um, so we can use all this information to help landlords make great decisions, to help tenants be successful, to find the, the right kind of space for them to be successful. Mm-hmm. And so it has a lot of application as opposed to finding a broker who's just, yep, this space is available. Do you like it? All right, let's negotiate the lease. Good luck to you. Right. Right. And that's sometimes what normal looks like in a lot of places. And uh, Just trying to we, fill the space, right? And we miss an opportunity to really serve people, both our landlords and the tenants that we're trying to help. What advice would you give to that person or anybody that has an idea to open up a shop, doesn't have much of a track record, is going to have a hard time getting the money? What then do they do? Three things come to mind. One is uh, you need to build it on paper, like an actual business plan. Um, One of my mentors would always tell me, if you can't make it work on paper, you can't make it work in real life. Mm. So it needs to be more than a dream and a passion. Uh, you need to build it on paper. Uh, and sometimes you need to seek help doing that. Right. And, uh, and that's why we've got our business consultant buddy who's kind of at the ready to help some of the people we're working at actually build a business plan. If you can't do that, there's no reason to do anything else. Keep dreaming. Okay, let's say you can build it on paper and it does work. And you don't have the experience or the financial wherewithal to uh, actually pull the trigger and and create in real life what you've created on paper. One is I would suggest you work in that industry, okay? So I hate that we're using a vape shop example, but let's keep running with it. Okay. Go work in a vape shop. Like spend a year or two and learn the business as best you can, mm. okay? Yeah. Don't look at it as a, as a job. Look, as it, look at it as going to vape shop school. How yeah. can I figure out how to do this really, really well? So okay. Good. And the third thing is you got to save like crazy or you got to bring on partners that have the financial wherewithal that you don't have. And when you're looking for partners, one, they can be very problematic. They also, they often end in nasty divorces. But what you should be looking for is someone with money who also brings some experience to the table that you don't have that will complement your weaknesses. Yeah. All right. So those would be the three things that I would probably suggest to you. Yeah. Build it on paper, get experience in that space, in that industry. And then if you need to bring on somebody who can fill in some of your weaknesses and bring some money to the table or just be patient enough to save up on your own. Because even with step one, build it, build it on paper. If it doesn't work on paper for anybody who's driven or is not going to be stopped by obstacles, which is what it takes to run a successful business, you now know what you need to make it work on paper. Yeah. And you You might figure out, all right, look, my vision is to have this big space and it's full of people all the time. And when you build it on paper, you're like, and this would be a train wreck, Mm -hmm. right? So the time in between the events, when we fill it up with people, it's costing me just as much money and nobody's in here. Yeah. Right. So if I bring this back down to say, you know, 
4,000 square feet instead of 15,000 square feet. Well, now everything starts to work. And you might just pare back your dream size-wise so that it can actually happen. And then right. maybe you start to duplicate that process in other locations. And I know, man, I know if I find the right location, you give me 4,000 square feet, I can do this again and again and again. Maybe you end up with multiple locations. Maybe you decide you want to franchise and it can just lead to all kinds of opportunities beyond that. But yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We doing a pop quiz? Yeah, we're doing a pop quiz. Talking about demand, see if you can run me through what the overall demand model looks like. So it starts at basic employment. Take me down to the bottom. Okay. Got basic employment mm-hmm. to total employment. Yes. Total employment leads to? Uh, we get the total population. Leads to disposable income? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's the structure of the demand model. Basic employment leads to total employment. Total employment leads to total population. Total population allows you to figure out how much disposable income is in a market. And then you can roll from there to the four major food groups. So question two, which part of the demand model drives demand for industrial use? Population. And? Um, It's the only one that has two parts of the demand model that drive demand for it. Two parts of the demand model that we just said. One of them. Basic jobs, employment. Oh, employment. Yep. So employment and population. Total employment, total population. That's what drives demand for industrial space. Okay. Okay. Two for two, right? Two for two? Yes. Yes. You have limped to right answers twice in a row now. I'll take it. But you will get this one. Okay. Now, what is the unit of demand? When we talk about housing or residential, what is the unit of demand? These questions are so... Well, think through it. Okay. okay. Uh, let's, you... let's just talk about it a little bit. Well, let me let me say, you got households, number of households and household units. But is that what you're asking? Yeah. I mean, you said it, households. House- the unit for demand for residential is households. So total population drives demand for residential, but... Oh, okay. You don't care about people. You care about how many households there are. I got it. And that's the demand unit. The supply unit for housing is housing units. Units. Yep. Okay. So you have households and you have housing units. Households are the demand. Housing units are the supply. Okay. Okay, okay cool. Yeah. We're, you're, it's like almost like we're talking in math terms. Oh, there's like with very quite a bit of math. That, yeah, there's quite a bit of math that goes into this, so. And, then, and that's why it's so confusing for me. Uh, but that all makes sense. And it's helping it lock it in for me as well. Yeah, you're three for three. Now, what drives demand for office? What drives demand for office? See, the last question you said, what's the demand unit? Could you, but now it's like, what's, you're not asking for the demand unit. You're saying what drives demand? Yes. For office. And that would be um, employment? Yes, total employment. Total? Total employment. Now, it's not every employee that drives demand for office space. It's only office-using employees. And so you can't just look at total employment 
and draw a direct line to office demand, you have to figure out how many employees in this market are office users. Yeah. And there's ways to do that. Great. So four for four. Final question. What is the equation for a gap analysis? Demand minus supply? Yes. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Did I yeah. tell you the story about mom before? You feel like I told you. about mom, but which one? Yeah, Say, I mean, has, has the... I'm going to tell her again. It? Yeah. I'm teaching uh, the CCIM 102 course on market analysis. And I'm teaching in, in Miami. Mom and dad were at their condo in Pompano Beach, which is, you know, 40 minutes north of Miami. And so they came down and spent an afternoon in the in the back of the class watching me teach. Oh, I bet they loved that. Oh, my God. I bet they loved that, watching you teach. When I teach, I repeat myself a lot because I think repetition is a key to retention. And so over and over again, I'm saying gap, the gap equation is demand minus supply, demand minus supply. I bet I said it 30 times while we were going through all of this, a deeper dive into, into what we were talking about in this episode. And so at the end, I gave them, I gave them a quickie quiz, which I often do at the end of a session. I'm like, all right, I got some questions for you guys. And I called on mom in the back. I was like, mom, tell me the formula for a gap analysis. And she goes, supply minus demand. Yeah. I was like, no, no, no. It's demand minus supply. Like she, she got it. (laughs) Mom was not listening. Yeah. Well, the whole time. Yeah. I, I sure she was. That's an easy mistake. As detailed and sharp and, and just as smart as mom is, Mm -hmm. you know, I fully expected her to just, I I was going to put her on the spot. She's going to hit it out of the park and. Mm -hmm. And she flipped those around and I was, yeah, I, I mean, after, and I felt bad, you know, I put her on the spot. And, right. But yeah, after you did that, was she like, oh yes, of course. Or like, wait, is there a difference? Oh no, 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 no. Like yeah. she, yeah, she got it real quick. Yeah. 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 Okay. But yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Anyway. Cause that, I mean, those kind of mistakes happen to me all the time, all the time. Oh, and me too. Yeah. There's, there's certain things I have to look up every time I have to deal with them. Oh, surely. I'm like, is it this way or this way? And I get him confused all the time. Yeah. yeah. Surely not, though. It's true. Not my older brother, Bull Baron, who employs top producer Todd Humphreys. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool. Well, Bo, this was fun. Good. Yeah, this is fun. Like this one a lot. A lot. Cool. Stand by. Stand by. Stand by. And I just pop into Sean Connery. Stand by. Well, I was a boy when I first climbed this hill. Well, shoot. I shared the screen. I think Alice saw it. We were there. We were there. Yeah. It worked. Your your things. Your thing didn't work. Privacy and security. Boom. Okay. Just read the instructions. Screen recording. Brave. Boom. I know it. Oh, that's fine. Stop. We're done recording anyway. There you go. Wake up, Bo. I don't know. I didn't. Maybe I'll have to refresh. I'm going to stop recording.